as the ushers pass the hats around. Um, I would like to read the scripture portion for today. The scripture portion for today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 7, verse 24 to 27, and I'll be reading from the ESV version right now. Matthew, chapter 7, verse 24 to 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his rock house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. That's the word for today. I invite Brandon for the sermon. All right, well, from me, welcome. Glad that you could be here with us. Uh, today, as you might have guessed if you're just joining us, we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, more specifically, we're looking at the very last words we see Jesus give us from Matthew's accounting of this powerful sermon, and very well-known sermon, but as we've looked through it, sometimes overlooked in just how much weight it has in it. And Jesus ends, as Jesus would in his typical style, with a parable. The image given is pretty well known. We, many of you might have heard that in one way or another. Uh, it's used often, this idea of building on the right foundation. But let's not take it for granted or miss the weight of what's really being said. It's not just an image. It holds the same weight. And in fact, the reality of this parable is the as it's as sobering and, and weighted as what we looked at last week when we saw those weighted words that Jesus gives us that not all those who say, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom. And we see this same message here. In fact, throughout Jesus' entire conclusion that we've been looking at for a few weeks now, that uh, he's been maintaining just this clear, poignant declaration for us today. The reason that Jesus has been kind of repeating himself with several different parables and analogies as he's going through the conclusion and kind of ending of his message is because it's that important. As I've mentioned a few times, you know, Jesus doesn't repeat himself because he likes to hear himself talk. He does it because he wants to make sure we get it. And this whole last section, he's been doing this. And this is why we've taken so much time with each individual expression to take time and look at it, examine it, and understand it. We want to understand this incredibly vital point that Jesus is trying so, so, so heavily to impress upon us. He began back in verse 13, if we kind of recap, to look at this conclusion as a whole before we take and break apart this last uh, parable that he gives us. He says, enter through the narrow gate. Enter through the narrow gate. That's where this whole message began, and that's what he's been continuing to tell us, because there are only two options. Sorry, I'm coming in quick, guys. We have a lot to go through, so I hope you guys are still with me. I know it's like some of you look a little tired, so stay with me. Uh, he began this because that is the reality of it, right? There are only two options, two gates, the narrow gate that follows the narrow path that leads to life and life everlasting, and the wide gate, the broad road that leads to destruction. 
As Jesus is concluding his sermon, he is pleading with us to recognize the choice. So he's gone through this whole sermon on the mount and gone through a lot of different topics. We'll look at that a little bit as an overview uh, next week as we conclude this series. But he, as he's going through all, as, after he's ended all these kind of uh, points that he's made and doctrines of, of how to live our life based off of the law of Christ, he wants us to recognize that we have a choice. To recognize how easy it is, though, to end up on the wrong path. That it's, we have to pay attention to the root, to the path that we choose. The most sobering is that we can end up on this wrong path, but believe we're on the right path. Jesus went on in verse 15 through, uh, through 20 to warn us that there are those that would lead us astray. There are those that would lead us astray. He says that they are like wolves in sheep's clothing. They know how to play the part. They know how to say the right things. But they are not speaking the truth, or at the very least, they're not speaking the whole truth. Thus, they deceive people into thinking that they belong to God, when in fact, they do not know Jesus at all. Jesus, this is Jesus' warning. It's something to be taken serious. And Jesus hammers this point deep into our hearts with, as I mentioned, those heart-wrenching words we read last week. That not everyone who says to Jesus, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Something that should strike us and make us ask hard questions about our own heart. And here's where Jesus makes it clear that he's not dividing between those who claim to love Jesus and those who reject religion altogether. We have to make that distinction. Jesus is talking about those who say, Lord, Lord. Right? Who seem to be believers from the outside, from all, for all appearances. Who believe they know who Jesus is, but they don't. Often these are the people that have, in fact, been deceived by false teachers. This is why Jesus follows or flows this kind of line directly from talking and making this great warning about be careful about these false teachers. Their fruit looks good, but it's not, it has no sustenance. It has nothing in it that's not life-giving directly into this, his example of those who will say to him, Lord, Lord, but they will only hear those hurtful, painful, surprising words, I never knew you. I don't know you. Because they never really knew him. And now we come to our text today. Jesus' final parable. The image is very different, but the message is exactly the same. It's exactly the same. Both gates will appear to be correct. Both paths will seem to be leading in the right direction. Nobody's going to get on a path that they think leads to destruction. They think that they've made the right choice. Both trees will produce fruit, but only one is a good fruit and has a purpose. The other is useless, though on the outside they may look the same. And all those who claim to be Christian will call out, Lord, Lord, all Christians, all true believers as well, should call out Lord, Lord. So they will look exactly the same, probably agree on many of the same points. Yet only one of them is a Christian. Only one of them is a child of God. And here we have two houses. Just as with the others, it's the same story. If you were to look at these two houses, you would not notice any differences. Same basic architecture. 
Same basic location. We can be sure of this because they face the same elements, the same rain, the same wind, the same floods comes at them both, meaning they're really right next to each other. Spurgeon says it this way, the wise and the foolish man were both engaged in precisely the same avocations. They, were, they were, had the same goals. They were doing the same thing. They had the same uh, vision in mind when they were building their house and to a considerable extent achieved the same design. Both of them undertook to build houses. Both of them persevered in building. Both of them finished their houses. The likeness between them is very considerable. It's worth considering. It's noteworthy that for all accounts, they would appear to be no, there appear to be no visible differences between the two houses. That is, as long as the weather stayed nice and sunny. There is, of course, a massive difference between the two. Though it is unseen, it is a fatal difference. One has a foundation of rock, unmovable, unshakable, in all circumstances and in every situation. The other, a foundation of sand that shifts and changes underneath the house. And as the house comes in contact with any force of nature that would try to shake it, it crumbles quickly under its own weight, having nothing underneath to hold it up, nothing underneath to sustain it. Let's consider now what both houses will face, the elements they endure, because this is another thing that unites them. They both encounter the same things. Let's look a little bit about what that is. This will, I think, apply to all of us. We can all relate to this in one way or another. It says, the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. Now, both houses experience the trials, the, the difficulties of life, and the differences only one will remain standing. Now, these three elements demonstrate great power. We have to kind of grasp that because now we check our apps. Oh, it's going to rain tomorrow. I'll just stay inside. Not really much thought given to it for the most part. But in this time, I mean, there was no you know, atomic bombs. There was no like great power greater. There was nothing greater than nature itself. It was unrelenting force, the wind, the rain, the floods. And we can think about how powerful this must have been in their minds, especially when we think about the disciples as having seen Jesus do some amazing miracles. But that point when they saw Jesus calm the storm is like you see their jaws drop. They're like, whoa, who is this? Who is this that controls the wind and the waves, that controls the weather? The trials of this life, they have power to shake us to beat against us, to hit us hard. But they cannot defeat us if we have a strong foundation. So what can it look like? Now, when we talk about this, I want to just give a few kind of understand, like things that we can think about. We have to be careful not to overanalyze when it comes to uh, parables. Uh, but we have to also consider that Jesus did choose rain, floods, winds. And I think that everything Jesus does is for a purpose. Um, without overanalyzing it, though, I think when we look at these, I see some distinctions that we can draw on when it comes to the things that we will face. So rain, I think of rain as the storms that come from above. And one thing we can think of is that God often tests us himself. Often God puts us through tests and trials to shape us, to sharpen us. 
But when we have a, a firm foundation, it's always for a good purpose. But we can also think of it as the rain, as something that falls on everybody, on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Everybody experiences the rain. And so we can think of things that everybody will be affected by in one way or another. Things like sickness. Most people, in one way or another, will endure some kinds of sickness. Losing my voice a bit right now, have a little bit of that experience at the moment. We can also think of things like loss. Everyone will experience loss. If you're pretty young, maybe you don't have that much experience with it. Maybe you do, but you will. We, everyone will experience loss. Loss of people in our lives. Loss of things. Losing a job. Whatever it might be, we will all face seasons of loss. Another one that I think of that maybe, again, not all of you, some of you, but a lot of you are still fairly young and may not be thinking much about this, but old age. Old age comes to everyone. And many struggle in their faith when they get to that point where they don't have the energy they once did. They don't have the drive they once did. You get weaker. Your beauty will fade. Sorry. That was a shock to you. Your beauty will fade. And death. Death is inevitable. We will all face death. And as it gets closer, this can be a thing that comes against many people and brings on great fear. Whereas those who have a firm foundation, it should bring a certain level of peace. If the foundation you build your life on is the wrong kind of identity, when you lose it, the house will fall. If it's your beauty, if it's your youth, if it's your job, your possessions, simply the relationships in your life, your health, these are the things your foundation is built on. When you lose them, the house will fall. The next example we see is floods. I see this as an example of what rises up around us, which is the world, the world around us that comes and just rises up in our lives. And this can be things like temptations. It can be distractions. It can be persecutions. It can be finances that become this great stress in our lives. It can be conflicts that we have with other people, with colleagues, family members. It can be things that come even from internal, internal struggles that we have. But this kind of just things that just kind of come and rise up in our life, sometimes often surprising us. I come from Texas, so when we talk about floods, it's a very serious thing uh, in Texas because it's almost always a flash flood. So literally within minutes, there can be just roads that are completely covered and uh, out of nowhere because the ground is dry and hard, and so when it rains, it floods. And so this is the idea, things that can just kind of rise up almost unexpectedly from the world around us, and sometimes even from within. And the last we have is winds. And when I think of winds, I think of the attacks of the enemy. Yes, we have a real enemy, a devil, who seeks to distract us, to distort our view of who Christ is, and to drag us away in any way he can. And this can be things like negative thoughts and doubts and fears, worries, spiritual pressures, distractions and manipulations. Sometimes we have these thoughts where I don't know where this is coming from, and we have to learn how to battle those things that we would not be shaken, not be defeated by those things. And a lot of times we see the perfect storm when the rain falls, the floods are rising, and the wind is beating us all at the same time. So we have to be aware of these. And I think we also have to keep in mind 
to reflect on the final judgment that we will all face when we end this life and we stand before God. When this life ends, we will then see the ultimate foundation that we have. Then we will know what our foundation is truly built on. And I can imagine that it's safe or relatively safe to assume that most of you, if not all of you here, hope to find yourself as a wise builder, laying the right foundation, not the fool, but the wise builder, that you won't crumble, not now in this life, when, when, when no matter what trials or tribulations are coming against you, no matter what rain is falling down, no matter what wind is coming at you, no matter what floods are rising in your life, that you would be able to stand firm. And certainly, I would imagine most, if not all of you, would hope that you would have the right foundation when you stand before Jesus on that final day of judgment. Well, I want to encourage you because even though this parable speaks of the finality of our choice, the fact that we are reading it today means that we have hope. There's still time. We have a choice to build on the right foundation. We have a choice to build on the right foundation, even if we have the wrong one now. Now, to best understand the wise builder, let's consider his counterpart, the fool. Verse 26, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. So we can first learn a lot simply by understanding the nature of the fool in general. The fool is hasty, lacking patience. He wants to build his house quickly, irregardless of where it's located. Not thinking ahead, not consulting others who've gone before him, who have the foreknowledge that he could learn and grow from. Those who have already built their house on a good foundation. This is the one who doesn't seek to learn from others, to learn from church history, to ask questions about why things are done the way they are, to make sure they're building the right foundation, to take time and grow slowly, but faithfully and with assurance in their faith. They want something fast. They want to grow up quickly. They're much more interested in simply building something as quickly as possible. They're not counting the cost, considering the price of following Jesus as he pleads with us to do. They want to build up an image of Christianity, an idea. They like the concept. They like the idea of Christianity as most people in the world, in some sense, if you take the things that they like the best, will easily do. There's a lot of good things that we have. We have purpose. We have a drive. We believe in something that goes into eternity, that fills us with hope and joy and peace. Those are good things, but they don't think of the cost of what it means to truly make that decision to follow Christ. They're not willing to die to their sin, to put in the work, to hunger for righteousness, to surrender their earthly desires. We can think of the parable, also a famous parable, that Jesus gives of the seed that is thrown out and the seed that falls on the rocky soil. They hear it. They love it. They're filled with joy. They spring up, but there's no root. And so the heat dries them out quickly. The fool is also self-centered. He is self-centered. Although it may seem as though they have genuine Christian principles 
at the center of all their motivation is themselves. They seek what seems to be good and right. As Sam explained last week with a, quite a few examples, they pursue a lot of the good things of Christianity, spiritual gifts, doctrine, to understand the word, serving in the church, fellowship. They love the service. They love the worship. They love the liturgy of, of services. But ultimately, it is about themselves. It's about pride or seeking only some sort of self-fulfillment. Asking questions like, well, what can I really get out of this? If that's their motivation, they are a foolish builder. How will this benefit me? It's important, to, it's important for them often that others see their gifts, that others see their knowledge. They like to show all of their knowledge at once, that others see how they serve. It is ultimately about themselves. The fool also avoids what is uncomfortable at any cost. They're all too happy with the Jesus loves you message. And amen, he does. I'm so thankful that he does. I love him because he first loved me. But they don't want to talk about the holiness of God, the judgment of God, the calling to live a righteous life before him, to treat his word as holy and perfect, infallible from beginning to end. When it comes to uncomfortable doctrines, things that go against the culture, things that they would be ashamed to talk about amongst their friends that don't belong to the community of believers. They'd rather leave them out. And so what they're doing is building on a weak and shifting foundation that's not governed by something solid and eternal like God's word, like God himself, like Jesus Christ, but something that changes depending on how they feel or how others may feel so what then is the true characteristics to look for of the true Christian, the wise builder with the right foundation? Well, he tells us, it is everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. Who hears these words of mine and does them. But we have to be careful because we know we're not saved by works. So it's not merely the action of doing them, doing uh, the works itself. It's not just that, okay, I hear what Jesus is telling me. I'm going to be, I, I read the Sermon on the Mount, so I'm going to try really hard to do everything that it says, and then I must be a hearer and a doer. Well, we know that's not what it means. It can't mean that. One, because we know we'll fail. We know that it can't mean that because we know we're saved by grace. So then what does it mean? Because fundamentally, both the wise and the foolish builder will look as though they are obedient, or at least that's often the case. In fact, some of the most obedient people, biblically, were the ones that were the furthest from the truth. The Pharisees, they loved obeying the law as closely as they possibly could, down to the letter. So what then is it talking about? How do we distinguish the fool from the wise builder who genuinely hears the words of Jesus and obeys them? How do we distinguish? Well, I feel like this, the best example or the best text to go to is in James, James 1, 22 through 25. See this exact same principle. But be doers, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For 
If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at it, he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. So he goes, he looks in the mirror, walks away, no idea what he looks like. He's being a little bit extreme here. But the one who looks into the perfect law, that's the word of God, that's the law of Christ, the truth of the gospel, that looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. We have to note that blessed in his doing. So there is room there for those who can be doers, but are not the right kind of doers. They're not doing it having forgotten who they really are. So what James is actually saying, the difference is between the one who is self-deceived and the one who is in genuine obedience, it is the one who knows how to see himself. It is the one who knows how to see himself as a sinner. The one who walks away and forgets, the foolish man has no foundation of genuine repentance, genuine reliance on Jesus Christ for his salvation. And so it starts well. This is the image we see. He, he maybe he, he's, pray, he's prayed a prayer. He's raised his hand in a church service, accepted Jesus for all accounts, maybe even acknowledged that he's a sinner. But as he walks away from the mare, which is the truth of his salvation, he forgets that he's a sinner. He forgets that he can do nothing apart from Christ and begins to rely on himself. And as soon as this happens, there's no foundation. There never was. He never truly grasped what it means to repent, to see himself as an utter wretched sinner in need of saving. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The one with the right foundation is in regular self-reflection. We need to be in regular self-reflection and repentance to daily take up our cross and follow Christ. It's not a one-time thing. It's not pray a prayer once at a service, and then that's it. Done. I don't have to think about it anymore. I was a sinner. Now I'm not a sinner anymore. I don't have to worry about that anymore. No, we daily take up our cross. We persevere, and we seek to persevere to the end. Now, I want to be clear. I am not talking about beating ourselves up over our sin. That is also a gross misunderstanding of grace. That's not what this is about. See, we are free from condemnation. I have no condemnation. I don't feel condemned. There is no shame of sin anymore. We have perfect love in Christ, which casts out all fear related to the judgment of our sin, as it also talks about in 1 John. I don't have to worry about that. I don't have any fear of condemnation. I don't have to hold on to any shame. If I do feel that, that's the devil trying to distort the grace that I've received. That's not what we're talking about. But we do, however, mourn over our sin. 
which is something proactive. It's repentance. It's not condemnation. It's not shame. It's seeking that we might have righteousness in our life because he who is righteous lives within us. To be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. This brings us back to the Beatitudes. We must look at our heart. It is the one who hears the word of God, obeys the word of God, and has the demeanor to reflect on who it is that has changed them. Who it is that has changed them. It's not by my strength. I rely daily on the grace of Jesus Christ. I must go on my knees before him. Not once, but daily. Because I know it is impossible for me, it is impossible for you to produce the character of the Beatitudes, to produce the fruit of the Spirit. We rely on Christ, oh, but it is a good thing to rely on him. This is what it is to have a foundation, to be a wise builder. A wise, the wise builders, they are obedient to the word of God, but they are also humble in their actions before him. They don't need to be seen by anybody. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. It is between me and Christ and Christ alone. They are never puffed up or proud in who they are or in their actions. They always are making less of themselves and more of Christ. They cry, Lord, Lord, as all should. But it is never to draw attention to themselves. But as one being poor in spirit, who mourns over their sin, who is humble, merciful, peaceable, pure in heart. So the question is, are you a wise builder? Are you a wise builder? Are you building on the right foundation? A good question to ask is, do you like the Sermon on the Mount? Do you want to seek to live by these principles that Jesus gives us? Again, I've said it's not the gospel. If you live it perfectly, that doesn't save you. But when we are saved and we belong to Christ, we should long to live this way. Even though it will be difficult, will stretch you and mold you in often uncomfortable ways. Do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? Do you long to see Christ glorified in your life in the way that you live, even if it costs you greatly? Not merely for the sake of heaven or out of fear of damnation, but rather out of love and admiration for Jesus Christ himself. Knowing him and being known by him as your ultimate goal in all that you do. Building a foundation that seeks to live in full obedience to the law of Christ. And this brings us to another distinction between the wise and the foolish builder. When you find you come short, as we do, falling or failing, rather, to live in perfect obedience, or when life hits you hard through trials and difficulties, how do you respond? What is your immediate response? Where do you go? Do you do as we have the freedom to do? which is to ask, to seek, to knock, knowing that he will respond. He will give us what we ask. He will be there when we seek him. The door will be open when we knock. Do you always find God? Do you turn to him because you know he's there? 
a knowing that can't be taken or shaken or removed from you no matter what you face. Rather than being swallowed up by worry and fear. See, the wise builder should have a certain level of peace that surpasses understanding. And knowing that our Father is with us. I don't need to worry about anything. I have a good and faithful Heavenly Father. Is there a deep, unshakable confidence in that knowledge? In the knowledge that He will never leave you nor forsake you? That no matter what we face, He is always faithful to the end. And maybe you ask, how then do I rebuild my foundation? How do I rebuild my foundation? Well, I like what Luke says about this. This is the a same, the same um, parable. That's Luke phrases it a bit differently. And I like how he phrases it, so I'm going to read this. This is Luke 6, 48. So this is talking about the wise builder. He is like a man building a house who dug deep. Who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. See, when you're building a house, if you build on the surface... The house will fall. You have to dig down deep. You have to dig to the rock. You have to build your foundation on something that won't be shaken, that won't be moved. The earth shifts, sand even more so. You have to get to the rock. This is building a solid foundation. This is what it is to build a solid foundation, to dig deep. Dig deep. What does that mean? We need to dig deep into our hearts. We need to cut down to the deepest part of who we are, to the heart. When I say the word heart, I mean the biblical term for heart, which is the core of your being. We need to dig deep to expose sin, which hurts, to expose sin and shame and regret of our past. To be fully known by our Savior so that we are completely open and exposed to Him. How many of us have not really taken that time to think, to reflect on our sin, and to truly repent before our Savior? This means to remove everything we would try to hide, everything we would try to push aside. Everything must be removed so that The foundation is built on the relationship between you and Jesus Christ alone. Get this. I tell you, I don't know, maybe I don't know maybe you're thinking I already know this stuff. This seems like routine. Man, it ripped my heart apart as I was on my knees this week praying for this sermon. And when I thought about what this really means, I felt that cut down to the deepest part of who I am. And I hope that you can do that as well. Because this is the only way to build a true foundation. Everything must be removed so that the foundation is built on the relationship between you and Jesus Christ alone. With everything we've ever done, everything we would ever hope to do, everything we could ever gain, all removed. He is the rock. If we build on anything else, If there's anything between you and Jesus, the house will fall, and great will be its fall. The dirt, the sand of our life, of our past, of our ambitions, if we build on this, it will shift 
and the house will sink and collapse on itself. If you have anything in your life right now, if you have anything in your life that you hold on to more than you hold on to Jesus, you're not building on the rock. If there's anything in your life you wouldn't be willing to let go of right now for the sake of Christ, you're not building on the rock. You do not have a solid foundation. If you have any sin in your life, any regret, any shame of your past that you have not or would not confess to Jesus right now, then you are not building on the rock. But it's not too late. Dig out the foundation. Dig to the bedrock. Remove the dirt. Remove the sins that you still cling to. Remove the hurts that you have not forgiven. Those who've hurt you that you haven't let go. Let it go. Don't hold on to it. Or it will be the thing you're building your life on. Remove the shame of your past. Remove your ambitions for the future. That's your education, your job, everything that you cling to as your identity, your youth, whatever it might be, any of those things, because they can be taken in a moment, and most of them will. Build first on the foundation of Jesus Christ and Him alone. Then all of these things that you seek can be built. Then you can build your house on top of that, on top of that right relationship with Jesus. This is what it means to build the house on the right foundation. Everything else has to be pushed away. So many of us think we've done that, but when we really think about it, nope, there's still sins I hold on to. Nope, there's still unforgiveness I haven't let go. Nope, there's still things that if Jesus, if I felt like I had to let that go, I couldn't. I wouldn't let, I wouldn't let this job go. I wouldn't let my possessions go. I wouldn't let my money go. I wouldn't let these things go in my life. They're too important to me then you're building on the wrong foundation. We need a take the world and give me Christ attitude and then build on that. Then you have a good house. And if you lose your job, it doesn't matter. House won't, be fall, won't fall. My house may be shaken, but it will not collapse. It's built on the rock. When you get old, your beauty fades. You're getting weak. Death is approaching. Won't be shaken. That's not who you are. That's not your identity. Your identity is ahead of you. An eternity with Christ. You won't be shaken. If you really want to not be shaken, you have to be willing to let everything go for the sake of Christ. Anything else, anything else, anything you hold to, even loosely, it's the wrong foundation. The reality is the fundamental truth of the gospel that's so simple to say. It is so often heard, and I know if you come to this church regularly, you've heard it a lot, but truly understood by far too few. That we are saved by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. This is the rock. This is everything removed even ourselves, clinging to Christ alone. Only those who really grasp this reality become true hearers of the word and doers. Because when you grasp that truth, you want nothing more than to live for him.
You want nothing more than to love him with all that you are. You want nothing more than to serve, than to love others out of the great love and grace that you yourself have, have, have received. But it's never about yourself. It's never about gain. It's always about Christ. But when we cling to other things, we don't have the right foundation. And it's seen at the top of the house when we're not really doing them for Christ anymore. When we forget that we are truly sinners and need him every day of this life. So it's better to test your foundation now. Ask yourself hard questions. Is that, do I truly have that heart to surrender everything for the sake of Christ? To give everything I have away for him, for his glory? Is he really enough? I listened to a song this week that really challenged my heart. It's called Enough, or Not Enough, sorry. It lists all of these things that we can have, everything that we can gain. And if we had everything that we ever wanted, it should never be enough. And without question, we should say, no, it's not enough. Christ is enough. Anything else, we don't have the right foundation. Test your foundation now. It's better to do it now than to wait until it's too late. For we all will stand before God in judgment. All our foundations will be revealed. And only true believers run the race to the end. Enduring all trials and tribulations of this life and reaching the end with peace. To hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. This is the finality and the end result. And there's no second chance after death. But you have time now. That's why Jesus is so strongly emphasizing the absolute importance of grasping this truth. The choice is now. Which path will you choose? Will you be a tree that produces good fruit or bad fruit? Will you say, Lord, Lord, on that day and be received? What is your foundation? And I ask you to ponder on this as I pray now and invite the band to come up. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this truth. We thank you that you give it to us so strongly and poignantly. Father, we don't want to be deceived. We don't want to be on the wrong side. We want to trust you. We want to let everything in our life go. And as we prepare now for a time of communion, I pray that this would be the moment that we let those things in our life go. Let those things that we still hold on to, whether it be sin, unforgiveness, possessions, an identity, like a job or an education or our youth or our beauty. We want to let all of these things go, that if you took them, but you stayed with us, we would have enough. Work in our hearts to build a firm foundation in you and you alone. In Jesus Christ's holy name, amen. So before we prepare, prepare for communion, I want to say to those watching online, we're glad that you could join us. We hope that you don't see